shackled by heavy burden. You know, is there something pretty significant about the touch of the Holy Spirit? Have you been touched by Him lately? <laughs> we need to be touched by the Holy Spirit every day. Every day we need to have that experience. We need to have that opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit to touch us. And when He does, He changes us, doesn't He? Yeah, amen. It's a good thing. Well, this morning I want to continue with our parables that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 25. And he was answering the question that his disciples asked him in chapter 24, and that was about the end of the times uh, and also the uh, destruction of the temple. And these parables show us some really important things that we can apply in our lives today. Even though that this was given 2,000 plus years ago or so, the parables of Christ, the stories of Christ, the principles of godly living are eternal. and They never go out of style. And they never fade away. So as we look at these parables and how we should use them for our day to day, we can be very confident that we can apply them in a way that is productive and in a way that will give us eternal benefits. Clearly, I believe that we are living in the end days. I just see so many things happening around us that are continuing to escalate greater and greater and that we truly are living in the end days. But even if the Lord tarries until we are all dead and gone and the rapture comes in a hundred years, we are still to live by the principles of these parables. 
Because what we're doing today, remember, God is a great record keeper. And he sees and he understands not only the actions, but the attitude of the heart. And that's exactly what he's looking for. And that's what he's going to be measuring us by. It's not necessarily what we do, but how we do it and why we do it. And what is our heart in the process of doing things? Very important that we recognize the significance of our attitudes and of our motivations. We've spoken already about the other two parables, the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents or the bags of gold. And, and both of these parables have a specific meaning in mind. The, the, the parable of the ten virgins really talk to us about being prepared, coming with oil so that we could trim the lamp and that we could have that have our relationship properly in tune with the Lord so that when the groom comes back that we're prepared to go into the wedding feast. It's a, it's a parable of preparation. And it's also a parable of the fact that we have to um, be responsible for our own relationship. In other words, uh, the reason that the wise virgins couldn't share the oil with the unwise virgins is because the oil represents the Holy Spirit. The oil represents the relationship of the Holy Spirit that these women had or these people had that they were always getting refilled, retouched, like we just talked about, retouched by the Holy Spirit. And that is something that can't be shared. I can't give you my relationship with the Holy Spirit. That is something that only you can have. And so being prepared with that, being prepared to have our ability to come into the wedding feast is represented by the fact that we have extra oil, that we are prepared because we have a relationship that is, is, is vitally alive and always getting bigger and better. So that's kind of the, the thrust of the ten virgin parable is that we are keeping our lamps trimmed and we're having the preparation of the Holy Spirit. And then the parable of the talents or the bags of gold is talking about how we are to be working and being productive in the kingdom until the very end that we are giving a stewardship over a great, great talent or numbers of talents and that we are then expected to give a return to the master when he comes back, that we are to be profitable in our living, that we are not just to sit on our talents or sit on our, our hands or, or run to the mountaintops and wait for the Lord to return and be unproductive. No, he's looking for a productive servant. He's looking for a positive return. He's looking for fruit. And that's what, that's what the parable of the talents was about. Today we're going to be speaking of the parable of the sheep and the goats. And we're going to find out what this parable is about and how we are to be motivated and challenged by the words of Jesus. So open up your Bible, if you would, to Matthew chapter 25. Do you have your Bible with you this morning? Would you open it up to Matthew chapter 25? And we're going to be spending quite a bit of time here today, so um, keep it open and read along and mark it up. Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 31. I'm reading in the NIV. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That's Tony's verse. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He, replied, he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, this is some hard words here. This is a long and difficult parable maybe for us to understand. So I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to give us truly your thoughts. But we're not looking for a man's ideas. We're not looking for what some writer has said or some commentary, but we're truly looking for the wisdom of the Holy Spirit here. So we pray, God, you'll open up our hearts and open up our minds to hear and rightly divide the scripture we ask in this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing to note in this parable is the timing that Jesus is referencing. It's pretty clear that this concerns the second coming of Christ, not the rapture of the church. You see, remember, Jesus' second coming is coming in two stages. It's coming when he comes in, in, he's coming in the clouds, never to touch down, but to draw the church or call the church to meet him in the clouds, and then the church will be raptured, taken away from this world, and we will spend the next number of years, seven years, if you're pre-trib, rapture, in heaven with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb while the, great, the tribulation and the great tribulation occur on earth. The second coming that we're talking about in this parable is after the rapture, after the rapture has happened, after the tribulation has happened, and the end of all things have happened now, and Jesus is coming back again. This time he's coming back, and he is going to touch down on earth, and he is going to walk this earth, and he is going to set up his earthly kingdom for a thousand-year millennial reign. At this time, he will destroy the enemy, he will destroy the Antichrist, and he will take his rightful position as king of kings and lord of lords. So one of the first things that he has to do now in this parable, and, and at that time, is that he has to call all the nations to himself, and he has to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. Because there will be both living at that time. There will be those in the tribulation period that are saved, and they have lived through that terrible, terrible time. Don't know how they're going to live by it, because when you take a look at all the bold judgments and all the wrath of God that's being poured out on the great tribulation, it's going to be horrific. It's going to be really bad times. But there will be those that will be protected and will escape through that with their lives. And then there will also be the unrighteous. 
And so Jesus now comes down here at this time and he's, he calls all the nations of people to himself and this parable talks to us about what he's going to do. One of the first things he has to do is separate the goats from the sheep, the unrighteous from the righteous. Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now in this parable, he calls people sheep and goats. What's the difference between a sheep and a goat? Well, let's, lock, let's talk about some physical things here. I'm not a farmer, and I haven't spent much time with either animal, but from what I've seen and read, there is a huge difference in the personality and the temperament between a sheep and a goat. When they're both young, they're both really cute. I don't think there's anything cuter than a baby goat. But they grow up. <laughs> and when they grow up, they're like puppies. They grow up too, and all of a sudden you get a dog, not a puppy. I like puppies. But let's talk about goats and sheep. Goats are very independent, whereas sheep aren't. A goat can fend for itself much better than a sheep can. Goats typically have huge appetites, and they will eat almost anything and everything. Goats are very motivated by their own desires. They really don't care about minding the shepherd. They like to do their own thing, and they will butt you to get you out of the way. Has anybody ever been in a in a petting zoo or bed around goats, what do they do? They will put their head down and they will run right into you. For what purpose? I don't know. But they're kind of fun to watch. Sheep, on the other hand, are quite a bit different in temperament from a goat. Sheep are known not to be the smartest animals in the pen, so to speak. They need a lot of help from the shepherd. And they can be spooked and they can panic, and they can get a lot, a lot of stress in the sheep's life. They can, get, they can freak out really easily. Sheep also need to be led to find food. They don't find it on their own very well. They don't eat everything. They're pretty picky. They like green grass. And so they have to be led by the shepherd to find new pastures, and they need to be led so they don't starve to death, whereas a goat will find anything and eat it. Sheep tend to be good followers. Sheep tend to be herd mentality, and they're much more dependent on the shepherd to live than a goat, where a goat can live and survive basically on its own, where a sheep needs to be nurtured and protected. Throughout Scripture, God calls us, the followers of Jesus, sheep. And he refers to himself, Jesus, as the shepherd or the great shepherd. And in church settings today, he often calls the congregation the flock and the pastor the shepherd. And he does so for good reason. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 11, he tells us that this is where Jesus is calling himself the good shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14 says, I am the good shepherd, Jesus speaking. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And then verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
Let's go back to the parable. Verse 33 in the parable says, He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So there's a difference here in the people that he identifies as a sheep or a goat. God separates them so he can judge them. At this point on, God doesn't refer to himself as a shepherd any longer, but now he's just referring to himself as the king. Verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So he's referring to those on his right, which are the sheep. To the goats, go down to verse 41, Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, me who, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Remember, the sheep are on the right, the goats are on the left. What are the sheep doing that are so drastically different that would, that would be such a difference in their reward or their judgment? Let's go back to the parable. Let's find out what's going on here because the sheep are being, I'm sorry, the goats are being condemned to eternal punishment. The sheep are being rewarded with eternal life. So there must be something significantly different between their behaviors or what they're doing or how God is judging them. Let's look at verse 35 and, 40 and 36. For the sheep, it says, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. That was what the sheep did. What did the goats do? Verse 42 and 43. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. So the difference here between the sheep and the goats is in what they did or didn't do. And this is where we have to be careful because this is where this parable can be taken totally out of context where people can feel that their salvation is based on things that they do or the things that they don't do. There are, there are whole religions that base their eternal destiny on what they have done for God or what they have done for people so that their salvation is all about them and how good they are and how much they deserve to have God welcome them into heaven at that time. But that's not the process by which God has designed it at all. That's not the Christian way. That's not the process that God has designed. We are not saved by our works, but wholly on the grace of Jesus. We are saved wholly on the blood of Christ that he paid for our sins. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. <laughs> you know how, I, I, I just imagine here how difficult it would be if we were saved by our works. How difficult it would be to handle listening to everybody brag about all the good works they did. Could you imagine what eternity would be like listening to this person talk about what they did and this person talk about what they did and how good they were and you know, and it would just be one bragging section after the other, and how could I up your story, you know, and how, how just, it would be so just disheartening, and it wouldn't be fun at all. So thank, thank the Lord that we're saved by grace. Thank the Lord that it's not about what we do. 
It's the fact that we believe in Jesus Christ. So as we look at this parable, remember that Jesus is describing the end times and the end events and what we should be doing and how we should be living in preparation for that. So we should find this parable to be very interesting in how, how we today should be applying our life. What, we should, what should we be doing? So let's go back to the parable and look a little closer to the response of the sheep and the goats. Verses 37 and 39 say this about the sheep. For then, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? That's the sheep's questions. The goats had similar questions. Verse 44, they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? Neither the sheep nor the goat could remember ever seeing Jesus in these conditions and either feeding him or not. Do you find that interesting? I find, it, I find that very interesting here. Why the questions? Let's go back to the parable. Verse 40, for the sheep, Jesus says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then to the goat, verse 45, he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So both the righteous and the unrighteous didn't even know what they did or didn't do at any given time. I find this very interesting here that we're, we're finding that God is judging here people for something that they didn't intentionally do, but yet it was something that was, should have been automatically something that they were doing without even knowing it. So this gets a little confusing, so follow with me here. Hang with me because I, I want to understand, I want to make sure that we understand why this parable is of significance and how it can be taken out of context and we, gotta, we, we need to understand what Jesus is really saying here. See, things done without us realizing what's being done is really the true test of the character of a person. What I do when nobody sees me is really who I am. These are the things that really tell who the person is. See, if I know I'm being watched... And it's, then it's easy for me to do something that might stretch me. If I know that I'm being watched, it's easy for me to give of myself, to be very generous. When I know people are watching how much money I put in the offering or uh, they, they watch me at the food bank or wherever I'm at, whatever I'm going to do, if I know I'm being watched, then it's easy for me to do the things that I would be commended for. But when I'm not being watched... Am I still doing it? Is it still easy for me to do the things when I'm not being watched? It's not what we do that saves us. I've got to go back to this point. It's not what we do that saves us. It's what we do as a result of our salvation. And when and why and how we do what we do after our salvation is what God's looking at. We all recognize that? Are we good with that? I'm not saved by what I do. But now that I get saved, what I do matters. And how I do it, and why I do it, and what's my motivation for doing it. Remember, what does God look at? Is he looking at the outside or the inside? He's looking at the heart, isn't he? He sees all the outside, clearly. 
but he knows the motivation of the heart, and that's truly what he's looking at in a man. When we realize that, it helps us understand more significantly what we do. Now, really, we need to go back even further. We need to know, before we can even begin to appreciate that, we need to really know where we come from. Why are we here? Who made us? What's our purpose? Where are we going? We need to go back and really understand the beginning of why man is even here. When we realize where we come from, then we can begin to understand where we're going and what we need to do to get there. When I understand that I am made in the image of God, because that's who I'm made in the image of, and so are you. It says that in Genesis, right? He made us in the image of God, and he breathed, in, he breathed into the nostrils of man, and they became a living soul. So we're created in the image of God, and when I know that I'm created in the image of God, it then gives me a better understanding of how I'm supposed to act. If I thought, if I believed that I was a part of evolution, and I was just a part of a bunch of uh, organic chemicals coming together and some spark hit and all of a sudden life was created and I didn't have an originator, I didn't have a design by God, then it really doesn't make any difference what I do because I'm not created in any specific image. I'm just made in the image of nature. Therefore, my actions don't really matter too much. But when I truly understand that I'm made in the image of God, it gives me a better understanding of my expectations of what God is expecting now because I have to know the character of God. So let's take a minute here and realize what is the character of God. If I'm created in his image, then I must, must need to understand what his, his character that I'm supposed to reflect. And we get that by reading his word. Now we know that God's character is, is more than what we can even begin to understand, especially in a sermon. There are many characteristics of God that I will never be able to attain to. Recognize that. He is omniscient, meaning he knows all things. He is omnipresent, meaning he can be all places at all times. He's omnipotent, meaning that he's all-powerful. I will never be able to be any of those three. I will never be able to be a mini-God that I can have those attributes. I understand that, right? We're created. We're not created in that, but we are created in other attributes that God has given us that we can be his image-bearer in. And I want to just highlight a few of those just because I can, these, if, I, if I can get these three down, this will help me to be the overall image bearer of Christ on a more, um, a more natural level and also in a more supernatural level, okay? Let's talk about these three. First of all, God is love. God is love. First John four sixteen. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them, all right? God is love. And the Bible talks about that in many, many areas. We can go to many scriptures and, and, and have that proven to us. The second thing God is, God is just. Psalm 50, verse 6. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Thank the Lord that God is a God of justice. And then thirdly, God is holy. Psalm 99, verse 5, and then verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, he is holy. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Now, there, again, there's many other scriptures that we could go to to reference that. But these are just three of God's unlimited list of characteristics here. And there's many others that we won't have time. I mean, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, 
self-control. Those are other attributes of God that we should be exhibiting as well, right? There's many, many characteristics of God. But if I can get these three down here, if I can learn to live in love, learn to live just, and learn to live holy, this really helps me to become uh, the person that God is looking for. And also then it helps me to relate to people in a way. Because we're made in God's image, we're also expected to exhibit the same godly characteristics if we're going to be pleasing to him for today in the things that we do right now and also in eternity. So in these terms, if I take this parable and summarize it in these terms, I can, I can basically can summarize it this way and how God is using this parable to separate the sheep from the goats. Basically, whoever lived a life of godly character was identified as a sheep and was rewarded as a pleasing person in the sight of God. All right, that's the sheep's characteristics. And the goat, whoever lived a life not of godly character, was identified as a goat and was condemned as a person that deserved eternal punishment. So what does that mean today? We have to bring this parable to what it means today so that we can gain something out of it. If I'm going to be living a life that is prepared for the coming of Christ, I must be living a life of consistency that is exhibiting the characteristics of God to all people at all times. Does that make sense? If I'm going to be a sheep, then I need to be living a life that is prepared for the coming of Christ, and I must be found living a consistent life of living godly character. If God is love, then I, as a godly person, are to be a person of love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So if I'm going to be an image bearer of God, and if God is love, then I must be love. And I must show love. If I'm going to be a sheep, these are some of the characteristics that I must be exhibiting in my life. If God is a God of justice, then I as a person must also be a person of justice. Amos chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. If I'm going to be a godly man of godly character, I must be a just man. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Okay, if I'm going to be a sheep, this is how I treat people. And then God is holy. If God is holy and if I'm an image barrier of God, then I must be holy as well. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Another translation asks the question in the middle of this passage. It says, when you think of what he has done for you, is this too much to ask of us? 
I mean, when I think of all that Jesus has done for me, is it too much to ask for me to be holy like he's holy? Really? Yeah. We just have to realize that we need to have his character. So we need to learn and apply in our lives on a daily basis the character of God so that we can fully understand the intent of this parable. The reason that I say this is because the question that both the sheep and the goats asked when the king spoke to them explained that they were either rewarded or punished as a result of their character of what they did. The question was, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick in prison? Both the sheep and the goats asked the same question. Neither party was aware that they were doing anything on their own. Neither party knew what they were really doing, and so it was really showing in their heart, and it was a, re a revelation of their true character. Were they truly godly or not godly? And that's the reason for the great reward or the very harsh punishment. It wasn't just necessarily that they fed a stranger or they clothed a person or visited somebody in prison. It was their heart in the process of doing it. See, many times we can misapply this and we can think all, it's all about a big event. We're going we're gonna to organize a work bee. We're going to organize a community event and we're going to all come together and we're going to all work this a big event and, 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 and because we do that, we're going to be considered a sheep in the parable. But I'm telling you, folks, it's much, much more than that because there are many ungodly people and there are many ungodly organizations that do that every day. And they do it very well. If there's a need to be met, they're the first ones to go meet it. But they're not godly. They have no God in their heart. They're just good people. And they're just out trying to do good things. I mean, look at all the disaster relief organizations that go down and take care of the people in the hurricanes and take care of things. That's all good. I'm not saying it's bad. But just because they're doing that does not make them a sheep. Because it's what God is looking at in your heart to be. Why are we doing it? Are we doing it to bring glory to our organization? Are we doing it to bring glory to myself? Or am I doing it because truly I have a heart for the Lord and I have a heart for these people? Now, I'm not saying that good things done in an organized fashion is bad, so don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm just trying to get us to understand the parable to mean that God sees the heart and he sees why we do what we do more than just seeing the what we do. What we do is still important. In fact, it's very important because if we never have an excuse not to do the right thing. I'll just tell you that right now. We never have an excuse not to do the right thing. James, the half-brother of Christ, tells us that God does not show favoritism and neither should we. Open your Bible to James chapter 2. We're to treat people as fellow image, image bearers of God and then honor them and respect them as James tells us. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated, discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith 
and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. And then skip down to verse 8 and 9 of that same chapter. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, I know these are pretty heavy words, but these are the words that we're to live out on a daily basis. This is the call of Christianity. This is our responsibility. If I'm going to be an image bearer of God, that I need to have love, justice, and holiness, the marker of my life. I need to be known for that. We, as a church, need to be known for a church that is just, that is loving, and that is holy. And anything less than that is going to be unacceptable if, we're going to be, if we want to be considered a sheep on that day. Jackie, would you come? We'll start to wrap this up here. Francis Chan, I think most of us know who he is, he makes an interesting observation about the character of many Christians today. All right, this is, what, this is what Francis says. I'm quoting him. We live in a time when Christians are starting to change their theology because they're ashamed of the words of Jesus Christ because it's not popular. We can busy our lives with good things that aren't the most important thing, and I feel that there's a cop-out in Christianity today. He goes on to say, many Christians are more, more than willing to participate in good causes such as racial, rac racial rec reconciliation and fighting poverty, but too few people are spreading the gospel. I've never been persecuted for feeding the poor. I'm applauded for that. No one's persecuted me for fighting against human trafficking. They applaud me for that. No one gets angry at me because I want unity in the church, racial reconciliation, or even reconciliation between denominations. But persecution comes when Christians pinpoint sin and talk about Jesus as the only path to being saved. He goes on to say, I'm promising you, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it, but you're not going to regret it. I don't want to, I don't want to be ashamed of Jesus and his words because I don't want him ashamed of me when he comes. So let me ask us this morning, as we look at this parable, talking about feeding the poor and ministering to those that are needy amongst us, clearly it's something that we need to be doing. But can I ask you personally and corporately, why are we doing it? Why do you do it? Do you do it to be known for yourself? Or do you do it to be known to be a sheep because you are, you, you are showing the character of God, the love of God. Are we goats? Are we sheep? This morning, I just want to ask you to consider that. As we come to, we're going to end the, the service today with communion and no better way than to share the body of Christ as we share love with each other. And again, I am not saying that we shouldn't do organized things. We should. But just doing the organized thing isn't enough. We need to be living this life on a daily basis. When I see somebody in need, I need to be just be willing to help them. I need to be willing to live for them and to share myself with them and to die for them if I have to. Amen? Does that make sense? Are we good with this? Amen. Would you, um, if you feel so led, I'm going to pray, and then would you come up and share communion with us this morning? Father, we just thank you for this evening, for this day. Lord, I thank you for this parable. I thank you, Lord, for what you're trying to tell us in the midst of it. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would truly grasp it. 
that we would truly understand what we are to be doing in these days. That we are to be looking for everything we can, every opportunity we can to help those around us that need help. But Lord, I pray that you would give us purity of heart in the process. That we would be seeing truly the things that you want us to accomplish and we would truly be glorifying you here. Not anything about us. Not anything about this church. Not anything about me personally. But Lord, that we would see the love of Christ and we would be willing to share your love your justice, and your holiness. That would be our mark. Father, convict us in our hearts for the things that we've done, maybe with the wrong intention. Help us, Lord, to fall on our face before you and just forgive us for those things that we failed you in. And then, Lord, help us to get busy with the good things, the things that you would have us to do daily when nobody sees it. God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, as Jackie sings, would you make your way up to the front and we'll just have communion this morning? I did it a little bit differently this morning intentionally by giving a loaf of bread and asking someone to take it around and share it with you. It was intentional from the perspective of we need each other. I, I need you. I need you more than what you realize. And you need me. And you need the person standing next to you. And so by taking this loaf of bread, which should be significant of the body of Christ or representing the body of Christ, Christ gave himself for us. He willingly shared himself with us. And by us now sharing the bread of life with each other, we are basically saying that we need each other. This is the parable of the sheep and the goats. Lived out. I need you. And you need me. This church needs you. This community needs us. This community needs a group of believers that are willing to put themselves out because of the fact that we're saved. Not to save ourselves. But because we're saved, because of our heavy, heavy relationship with Jesus, now I give of myself freely. That is what this world is missing. There's no other organization, there's no other religion in the world that has that focus other than Christianity. So this morning, as you look at this bread and you realize where it came from and you recognize how you got it, somebody shared it with you. We need to share this bread with other people. We need to be sharing this life-giving bread in this community. This church or any, any of this church will not grow unless you share it. It will not grow. And not, I'm not talking for numbers. I'm talking about for the kingdom. 
The kingdom will not grow unless you share what you have. You must. You're required to. You're going to be judged by what you share. So we must share the love of Christ as he shared with us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this challenge. I thank you for this life lesson that we really truly would share the body of Christ with those around us. And that we would see the significant reason why. Because you are coming back for those that are working productively in the kingdom. You are coming back for those that are showing a return. You are coming back for those that have their lamps lit. And the, as the parable of the, the ten virgins, wise virgins were, that we were prepared with the relationship of the Holy Spirit with you. And now, Father, as the parable of the sheep and goats, you are coming back for the sheep that are truly exhibiting the character and the, and the godly nature of who you are to the world. So, Father, as we take this bread today, this is a reminder of who we are. It's a reminder of the fact that we have a relationship with you. And we thank you for it, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake of the bread this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Just take a moment and thank him for the fact that somebody shared the, blood, the bread of life with you sometime ago, and you received it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your life-giving. And now, as we hold this cup of juice, it represents the blood of Christ. Blood, as we all know, represents life. Without blood, there is no life. Jesus freely gave his blood for us. That it not just covers, but it washes away our sin. So that now when he looks upon us, he doesn't see a sin-stained person anymore. He sees a person washed in the blood of Christ. Fully redeemed fully reconciled so that he can separate us separately from the world. So Father, we just lift this cup up today and we look at it and we just marvel at it. We're amazed by the power of what this blood is, what it represents to us, and we thank you for giving it freely to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake together. Jesus. Amen. Now this morning, as we go out this morning, would you hug each other? Would you embrace someone? Would you tell them that you love them? Would you just find somebody that you haven't talked to yet today and just go up to them and don't leave this place until you embrace somebody, until you love them, until you, I appreciate you. Thank you for being who you are. Be blessed today. In Jesus' name. Amen.